Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Eleni Jokos, in for Julia Chatterley this week. And here's what you need to know. Mega merger AbbVie's bid to buy Botox maker Allegan goes through without a wrinkle. FedEx versus the U.S. government. The firm says that it's going to be suing the U.S. government over its export restrictions. And we have liftoff. SpaceX pulls off its most difficult mission yet. It's Tuesday and this is First Move. Right, so welcome to First Move. Great to be with you today. And we've got a jam-packed show. We've got so much news coming through. People are focusing on the war of words between the US and Iran. We're also focusing very much on the possible outcome of the G20 meeting. Of course, President Trump and President Xi. Uh, this is going to be a really important market-moving development. But let's take a look to see how futures are trading. We're 30 minutes away from the start of trade here in New York, and it's not looking good. We're pretty much in the red. And of course, this news of a mega merger, not enough to get investors excited. It's mostly still risk off today. Uh, we're seeing buying into gold, the Japanese yen, yen and U.S. Treasuries. Right now, U.S. futures are pointing to a flat to lower start. It does come after a record-setting week last week. Don't forget that we're still very close to that all-time high on the S&P. And of course, a bit of consolidation as we close off the first half of the year. On the horizon, though, a few things that could push markets lower. We're looking at the simmering tensions between the U.S. and Iran. And, of course, uh, that is going to be an important one to look at throughout this week. Um, and, of course, that negative news out of uh, the U.S. and Iran spilling over to the sentiment that we've seen in Asian markets as well. We, we saw them closing lower across the board. Chinese stocks breaking a six-day winning streak. Right, so gold getting its luster back. It's sitting at six-year highs. We've got the perfect recipe for buying into the safe haven asset. Uncertainty coupled with lower rates. And then, of course, oil prices, one to watch as well. Brent crude has really been delivering over the last couple of weeks uh, as a reaction to concerns around the Strait of Hormuz disruptions. Oil, though, cooling off a little bit today. And, of course, one of the big market-moving events of the day as well, taking place right here in New York, uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell will be talking about the economy later on today, around midday. This is going to be important because remember last week we heard news that we could expect rate cuts later on this year. The market is pricing that in. So, of course, this could be a market-moving event. This is perhaps why we're seeing a bit of reticence in terms of the market uh, in early trade. So, Let's get straight into your drivers. And it's all about a mega merger within the pharmaceutical space. And of course, it's between Allegan and AbbVie. Let's take a look at the dynamics here because you've got a 45% premium offered, $63 billion for Allegan. We've got Matt Egan standing by for us. 
And it's interesting, Matt. I mean, we've got a pharma play and a cosmeceutical play. It's healthcare and vanity teaming up together. What do the numbers tell us? It tells us that both companies felt like they really needed to do something dramatic because Allergan is not coming cheap for AbbVie. It's a $188 share deal mixed between cash and stock. Now, as you mentioned, that's a 45% premium to where Allergan was trading, uh, where it closed just yesterday. And the premium is even larger when you consider the fact that Allergan shares have been moving up in recent days due to speculation about a potential break up. Now, it is obviously a sweet payout for Allergan shareholders, but it is important to keep in mind that Allergan topped out at nearly $340 a share in the summer of 2015. Now, this deal is for roughly half that. Now, AbbVie needed to do something dramatic as well because patent protection ends in 2023 for Umera. Not only is this arthritis treatment the world's top-selling drug, but it also accounted for two-thirds of AbbVie's sales last year. And again, that patent protection is going to be expiring soon. So by acquiring Allergan, now AbbVie gets into the fast-growing market for Botox and other beauty drugs, everything from eyelash lengthening to double chin removal. Um, And so they they clearly felt like they needed to do something. The combined company will be a giant. It's going to have $48 billion in revenue and a presence in more than 175 countries. Yeah, and I mean, pre-market trade in terms of what we've seen on AbbVie's share price, it seems that market participants right now are signaling that it's just too much of a premium at $63 billion. But you made a really good point that Pfizer walked away from a $160 billion deal uh, for Allergan a few years ago. So that, of course, is also going to be quite important. Valuations are looking very different right now. But what kind of synergies can these two companies create? And as you mentioned, it's from, you know, getting rid of your double chin and then, of course, teaming up with hardcore healthcare products. I mean, we, we're going to need both at the end of the day at some point in our lives, I would assume. That, that's right. So the, the, the point about the stock move, it's important to remember that um, AbbVie is paying for some of this in stock. And so sometimes when you see a part, partially stock-based transaction, you will see an immediate drop in the acquirer share price. And so we're seeing that this morning. Now, as far as the synergies go, um, you know, the companies say that the deal will immediately add to the bottom line. It'll boost adjusted EPS by 10% over the first full year. They're going to get there um, through at least $2 billion of synergies and cost reductions uh, by year three. That's going to come from, they say they're going to continue to invest in their really important franchises, but they will cut costs in certain overlapping areas. They talked about a 50% reduction in certain um, overlapping R&D resources, sales and marketing, um, also in manufacturing and supply chain. So they say that they'll be able to Uh, really bring some value out of this by uh, joining forces. Well, thank you so much for that update, Matt. Appreciate it. All right, let's shift gears now and we're moving over to FedEx. The company says that it's going to be suing the U.S. government. It also says that it's not its job to enforce new rules and regulations regarding Huawei. We've got Paula Monica standing by for us and the company also says that it's not its job to police millions of parcels that pass through into the United States. And this is the second time we've been hearing about FedEx, uh, you know, in just a matter of days, because, it, you know, we also heard that they weren't able to deliver Huawei uh, products in the U.S. They say that it was just a mistake on their part. But again, two pieces of, of news that is going to be uh, affecting its share price. Yeah, this is very fascinating, Lenny. Obviously, FedEx is making the case that 
they can't be deputized to essentially be a law enforcement agency inspecting all of these packages. They are a transportation company, a logistics firm, and that's why this lawsuit has taken place, because FedEx has global customers that are going to be very annoyed at it if it is policing what these shipments are. And that's what's come to the uh, forefront with Huawei. Um, you know, most recently, you had a controversy as well where a uh, writer at uh, the UK offices of PC Mag was shipping a Huawei phone to the New York offices, and that got intercepted. So there are a lot of concerns right now yeah. that FedEx can't do its business, it, it can't do its job if they have to be worried about what the US government wants regarding this crackdown on Huawei yeah. equipment. And this is interesting because the, the Chinese government also wants to investigate why they weren't able to deliver a phone into the United States. Then you've got FedEx taking on the US government. I mean, you're looking at issues on both ends of the spectrum for FedEx and it's earnings day today for the company as well. How are investors going to be looking at this piece of news? Yeah, it's obviously another headache, Eleni, for FedEx. And I think what's going to happen is that investors, when FedEx reports after the close tonight, they're going to be very focused on what the company says about all of this global trade tension and what it's going to mean for its earnings and revenue going forward. The company's already warned several times about this year's profits that they're going to be hit by geopolitical concerns. And since things really haven't changed for the better, I think it is possible that FedEx, even if they don't cut their numbers again, they're probably not going to be bullish about the outlook for the global economy at a time where the U.S. and China and the U.S. and many other trade partners are, if not feuding, at least they're not on friendly terms. Paul, thank you so much for that update. Appreciate it. All right, let's move over to Iran-U.S. tensions. Listen to this idiotic desperate as well as mentally disabled. That is the reaction from Iran on the new U.S. sanctions towards uh, officials in that country. Hassan Rouhani responded to U.S. sanctions in that televised address using this language. We've got Fred Pleitkin joining us now from Tehran. Fred, I mean, one other thing that we've heard is that uh, diplomatic solutions are off the table for now because of these new sanctions, which of course is not what the U.S. government yeah. wanted to achieve by imposing mm. these new rules. Uh, where to from here? If there's no diplomatic solution, what solutions are there? It's, it's really difficult to see how that's uh, going to work out. And I think it goes, Delaney, to one of the fundamental disconnects that you have uh, between Tehran and Washington, D.C., where on the one hand you have the Trump administration that says that they're going to keep sanctioning Iran until they go back to the negotiating table. And I think that, uh, that John Bolton has already said that he believes that that's what's going to happen. But the Iranians are saying, look, it's precisely the sanctions that mean we're not going to go back to the negotiating table. So it's really difficult to see how the two sides are going to get out of that. As far as these sanctions are concerned, it really is an interesting case because the Iranians are saying that these sanctions are going to have absolutely no effect on their economy and are absolutely going to have no effect on the people who were actually sanctioned. You have the Supreme Leader, you have some folks around the Supreme Leader, the Iranians are saying they have no assets abroad anyway, and then you have some senior commanders of Iran's military as well. But the Iranians are saying just because these sanctions were issued, it means that negotiations are, or the door for negotiations are essentially closed. And that's one of the reasons why Iran's president came out earlier today and just absolutely lashed out at the Trump White House, questioning the White House's mental stability. Here's what he had to say. They had become frustrated and confused. 
They do not know what to do. They do strange things that no sane person in the history of world politics has done, or at least I don't remember. This is because of their total confusion. They have become mentally disabled. The White House is suffering from mental disability. We have some pretty strong words there coming from Iran's president. And one of the things that the Iranians kept uh, hitting on again and again, they said, uh, look, the U.S. is sanctioning a lot of high-level individuals and has said it also wants to sanction Iran's foreign minister, Jawad Zarif. And the Iranians are saying that America is telling them they want to go back to diplomacy, back to the negotiations. Well, that doesn't really mesh with the fact that the Americans are sanctioning Iran's top diplomat, Lane. All right, Fred, thank you so very much for that update. Appreciate it. All right, let's check in to see what news is making headlines uh, today. President Trump's senior advisor and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, will present a U.S. plan for Palestinian prosperity in the next few hours. He's in Bahrain to lay out a $50 billion proposal to investors, business leaders, as well as government officials. We've got Jeremy Diamond joining us now from the capital of Bahrain, Manama. Uh, and of course, Kushner is also facing quite a bit of resistance because they're saying we cannot achieve prosperity without a political deal first. So what is the reaction at the moment? There's resistance, but there's also $50 billion on the table. That's right. And that is really the central component of this and the center of a lot of the criticism that we've heard so far is the lack of a political plan accompanying this economic plan at the moment. But that is by design. This administration has been trying to present a different kind of approach here, offering up this economic package first. And let's just get into the details of that package real quick. $50 billion over 10 years. But again, all of this is contingent upon a political agreement between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And that is why a lot of the Palestinian Authority uh, representatives and, and uh, some other uh, Arab leaders uh, who are not attending this summit uh, have been saying, look, we cannot agree to some kind of economic package uh, without that political framework, without that discussion happening here in Manama. And indeed it will not. When Jared Kushner comes to the stage in just a few hours here to make his pitch to the Arab leaders who are uh, assembled here and, and representatives uh, from Europe as well, um, Kushner will not be addressing those political uh, components. He will be focusing on the economics. And what senior administration officials have told me is that really this is about making a pitch uh, to the region, to the Palestinian people directly to try and tell them, look, if there is a peace agreement with Israel, this is the kind of economic prosperity that you could see in the region. But again, a lot of question marks uh, still around how, in fact, this can actually become achievable because of the lack of those political details. As far as when those political details will come, the administration has struggled to get this plan out because of uh, turmoil, mainly, uh, in Israeli domestic politics. Now they're anticipating the release of that political component of this peace plan in November following the next round of Israeli elections. And the reality is that many parties around the world have actually tried to uh, assist both Palestinians and the Israelis to get to the negotiating table. Nothing's come out of it. And this is interesting that you've got, you know, $50 billion committed over a 10-year period. But surely Jared Kushner should also be talking about a political deal. Or do you think he's going to stay away from that and just focus on the economics of, of what's happening in that region? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And the administration is also not expecting any of the countries attending, any of the investors who are attending this conference to actually provide firm financial pledges 
towards that $50 billion. So again, it is very much theoretical. It is a detailed plan. There are 167 uh, various infrastructure and development plans being presented here uh, at this conference in, in Manama, Bahrain. Uh, but again, no money actually backing that up as of yet, and it is all contingent on that Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement, which, as you mentioned, has been sought for decades and decades. Yeah. Uh, but this administration trying a different approach now by presenting the economics first, and then they say they'll unveil the political plan at a later date. Jeremy Diamond, thank you so much for that update. All right, so Britain is set to announce its new prime minister on the 23rd of July. Uh, the list of candidates to lead the Conservative Party and therefore become PM has been whittled down to the final two. Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt, members of the party, all get a vote on the winner. Johnson, the current frontrunner, said today he's still determined to take Britain out of the European Union on October the 31st. People in Europe are being told to get ready for a potentially dangerous heat wave this week. A storm over the Atlantic and a high-pressure system are pulling hot air from Africa into Europe. Temperatures in some parts are expected to rise 38 degrees Celsius. So first uh, move is going to continue right after this short break. And still to come, the minerals in the middle of the U.S.-China trade war. CNN takes a tour of the only rare earths mine in the United States and high stakes liftoff. SpaceX launches its most difficult mission just yet. And uh, of course, uh, this is going to be uh, an important one to take a look at. We'll be back right after the short break. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from the New York Stock Exchange. I'm Eleni Jockers. Let's quickly check in to see how the futures are looking right now. Mostly uh, flat with a lower and mixed bias, actually. The Dow futures are pointed to a slightly positive start. So that's, that's a big move from what we saw earlier today. Healthcare stocks, one to watch. And, of course, AbbVie is buying out Allegan in a deal worth some $63 billion. Allegan shares are currently up quite a bit, up more than 30%. Uh, uh, in pre-market trading, AVI shares, however, are down 10%. And that's because, I guess, markets are just reacting to the premium that AVI would be uh, paying for Allegan. We're also watching the continued rise of Bitcoin. The cryptocurrency has been up over 4% today. It's pulled back a bit, but still trading above $11,000. And that's its highest level since uh, beginning, well, actually over a year now. A well below high ever, its all-time high of $19,000 set back in 2017, but still up almost 3% today. Well, joining me now, we've got Laurie Hainel. She's uh, the Deputy Global Chief Investment Officer at State Street Global Advisors. Really good to have you with us. Thanks for having and me. Just, just on the Bitcoin price, because it's an interesting one, you've got U.S. Treasuries, uh, we've seen a lot of buying into that space. The yen is doing well, gold is doing well, and you've got Bitcoin doing well. It seems that the safe haven assets seem to be attractive at the moment. Is Bitcoin being viewed in that space right now? Or are the fundamentals driving the price? I think it's less about Bitcoin as a safe haven asset and more about that it's actually got an economic value now. Yeah. That if you actually start to see it as a means of exchange, then that becomes uh, supportive for it as, a, as an asset, if you will. So uh, everything that's happening now with some of the other uh, new developments of Libra and whatnot yeah. are showing that there may be a path forward to some sort of an economic underpinning. Do you have exposure to it? <laughs> we, We've been very cautious about how we think about cryptos because we think they're still an emerging asset class. Yeah. Okay, it's interesting. You've just come out with your half-year report as well, and you're talking about focusing on fundamentals. And that's, of course, something that 
you know, it's about the long term and, sure. and getting rid of, you know, the volatility and the noise and the news. But you've also got the markets looking very overbought right now. How do you push through the noise and, of course, how much good news has been priced in and just focus on the fundamentals? Well, certainly the markets have run a lot harder than we thought at the beginning of the year. So we're up now in double-digit territory, which we never expected for 2019. But the other side of it is that with interest rates being so low, equities look relatively attractive based on a dividend yield basis, based on an earnest growth basis. So what we're doing is trying to be selective in this market, look for places that haven't appreciated quite so much, maybe some of the defensive plays which have done well, but again, relative to interest rates, still look like they have some more room to run. Are you liking healthcare right now and pharmaceuticals? Mm. I mean, we've got a mega yeah. merger that's been announced uh, today between Allegan and Abvin. Yeah. Healthcare and, and, and vanity coming together. Sure. Yeah. You know, healthcare has been one of our preferred segments for a while now. And again, we think there's organic growth there. Yeah. So it's one of the few places where there's actually demographics are driving the growth, where in a lot of other places that's not happening. Uh, but we're also not surprised to see some M&A activity here again, because a lot of these companies are flush with cash. And so how do they use that cash? Well, they could do R&D, they could do mergers, or they could repatriate to stockholders. So big news today, Jerome Powell going to be speaking about the economy and there's just been you know, this euphoria about the potential of rate cuts that are going to be coming through. The question is, are they going to materialize? You've also got the US president really concerned uh, about the fact that rates have not been cut just yet. So what, how are you reading to this and how are you preparing for good or bad news? Yeah. Look, the Fed has said repeatedly that they're going to be data dependent. Yeah. And, you know, we believe that the last rate hike in December was unnecessary, but we felt like they'd sort of backed themselves into a corner because they had signaled that they were going to hike, rate, hike rates, and so they didn't want to be seen as backing off of that. Yeah. But now I think they've set the tone that, you know, they are acting ready to, to cut. It looks like July might be the next time. Uh, but we believe they're still going to be data dependent, and a lot of the consumer data is still coming in very strong. You've got trade war concerns. Yeah. We've got Iran-US concerns. <laughs> and markets are doing really well. The question is, does this market still have legs? Or do you think that any kind of bad news could actually see some steam taken off? One of the most important things is going to be earnings follow through in the second yeah. quarter. So we've already seen a bit of a re-rating. So we're expecting that companies will come in OK, probably a little ahead of some of the estimates in the second quarter. But that's what's really going to drive the market from here. The other, like you said, it's a bit of noise. We'll see some gyrations in the market. But we yeah. wouldn't expect another big leg up install. We start to see some earnings follow through. And are you confident about earnings? Do you think Again, we think, to, we think yeah. that you've, we, they've been reset, so yeah. uh, with a little bit of an uptick more recently, so we think that companies are in a good position to at least achieve, if not beat, earnings in the and it, and it really just does depend on, you know, the multinational companies that have a global footprint. They might be more hurt with the trade war issue. And then local companies, yeah, it's all about local growth. And it, the economy is looking pretty good, but we have seen a bit, few data points that have created a bit of concern, like manufacturing and so forth. Are you pricing in anything with regards to data that could impact your favorite companies? Well, here again, we're focused primarily on companies that are geared to consumerism and yeah. more defensive plays. So as we talked about earlier, we've liked healthcare, we've liked consumer staples, we've liked some of the things um, that are more interest rate sensitive, like utilities, and REITs yeah. have been one of our more favorite uh, sectors recently. So we think the real estate market will do quite well here. So there are a number of places for optimism. Again, not breakout, we are late cycle, and we think you need to be a little cautious where you put money to work. Okay, emerging markets. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> getting expo exposure to this space. We know that they've been stuck in the middle of all the noise that we keep talking yeah. about. There's something that we say in South Africa, where I'm from, <laughs> if the US uh, sneezes, South Africa catches a cold. That's kind of the reality here. Do you want exposure to any EMs? So EM has been a real conundrum for us. We actually liked EM at the end of last year, started to overweight there, got a little bit of benefit from that. But again, they're really in the, the heat of a lot of this storm and not just some of the geopolitical tensions, but also China slowing. So it's a little hard to be too optimistic about EM in the short term. And in fact, we've cut our overweight back to more of a neutral posture there. We think, however, in the long term, there probably are some good opportunities, especially at these prices. Fantastic, Lori, great to have you on. Great. Much appreciated for, for your time. All right, so um, thank you to Laurie Hainel from State uh, Street's Global Advisors. Stay with us on First Move. The market open is up next. Don't go anywhere. Hey, yeah, I've got you. Move. I'm Eleni Jokas, live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the opening bell. Let's check in to see how the markets are faring at the moment. It's mostly flat as we get into the trading day. We had a negative bias leading up uh, to the open, but as you can see, we're slightly to the positive. We're looking very closely at drug and healthcare stocks after that merger announcement between AbbVie and Allegan, $63 billion worth. And of course, on the agenda as well today, Fed Chair Jerome Powell's speech in New York will be a key focus for investors. And that takes place around three and a half hours from now, word that U.S. and Chinese officials have begun talks in advance of this week's meeting between President Trump and Xi is keeping trade firmly on minds of traders. And of course, don't forget the run U.S. developments as well. Also want to watch that, of course, is just also simmering in the background. Let's take a look to see uh, the big movers uh, today here in New York. Uh, and of course, Allegan is way up after it was announced that U.S. biotech firm AbbVie will buy the Botox maker for $63 billion. Take a look at that. And then AbbVie is down uh, almost 11% right now. Investors perhaps weighing that the company is paying a 45% premium on Monday's closing price for Allegan. And FedEx is down 1.5%. Uh, the company is suing the U.S. government 
saying it cannot be held responsible for enforcing U.S. bans on China. And that stems from Huawei ban and FedEx messing up Huawei deliveries in light of the ban. So lots of things happening there. And says it's not its job to enforce export uh, rules affecting Huawei. And of course, FedEx is going to be uh, out with results after the close of trade today. Now, the U.S. president meets his Chinese counterpart at the G20 this week for their first talks since trade negotiations ground to a halt in May. While investors hope it leads to a thaw, China is hinting it may try to exploit a potentially powerful negotiating chip. It's a key role in the supply of the minerals known as rare earths. There's just one place in the U.S. that produces rare earths, and we've got Claire Sebastian right there for us for an update. Claire... Uh, you look fabulous <laughs> at the mine. Tell me about what you're seeing there. I mean, it's the only uh, place that you can mine rare earths uh, in the United States. And look, it's an important commodity for all technology that we use from our cell phones to our TV screens. Absolutely, Eleni. This is Mountain Pass, California. As you say, the only rare earths mine in the United States. It's fully operational, even though it's only 6.30 in the morning here, hence the uh, uh, safety gear, which is mandatory according to federal regulations. But look, the U.S. is actively now, because of the trade war and because of developments before that, looking to become more self-sufficient when it comes to the supply of these critical minerals. And if it's going to do that, it has to start here uh, at Mountain Pass. This is not only a, a very uh, valuable reserve, it's seen as one of the best reserves of these metals in the world. It has about 8% concentration down in the rock in the pit uh, below me. That's a very high number when it comes to these metals. But it is also fully operational. It's been ramping up since it was bought out of bankruptcy uh, over the past year and a half. It now accounts for the owners say uh, about 10% of the global supply of rare earth minerals. But, but this is going to be a long road for the U.S., uh, Eleni. China has a stranglehold over the rare earth supply chain from production to processing to even manufacturing the products that contain these rare earths like iPhones. So this plant is really in the spotlight as it, as it starts to ramp up its, its efforts to become more self-sufficient. It wants yeah. to start processing. It's planning to reopen a processing facility next year. That will be a big step, but it wants more support for the government because, of course, the industry in China is subsidized. There are much lower environmental restrictions there, and they say they'd like some support to try and level the playing field here. Yeah, and it's going to be important to look at the life of mine, to look at the quality of the rare earths, to see how difficult it is to actually mine in that region versus what uh, the cost would be if you just import uh, processed rare earths from China. What are the dynamics uh, that the, the, the business people are telling you at the moment regarding that mine and the viability of this mine being able to supply local uh, companies with rare earths? Well, in order to do that, they need to start processing it themselves. Right now, uh, the, the final product that they produce here is a concentrate, uh, uh, basically a 50% uh, rare earth concentrate, which they ship 100% of to China where it gets processed. They do want to change that. As I said, they are planning to open a processing facility. And when that happens, they will start to be able to supply companies uh, with, with a product that's further along the supply chain. Uh, but of course, this is, you know, this is this is this is a really crucial part of the economy going forward. Every new technology, pretty much, that we use from cell phones to, to wind turbines to electric cars, all of these rely on these rare earths, and demand for that is only going to go up. The owners here say they are economical at the moment; they are turning uh, a profit, but they do have to really look to keep costs down. And the other wrinkle in this, Eleni, is that China has slapped a tariff on rare earths being exported into China from the U.S. That pretty much only affects this business, and that has put extra pressure on their costs. Yeah. Fantastic, Claire. Thank you so very much.
uh, for that update, Claire Sebastian at a rare earth mine, the only rare earth mine uh, in the United States. Right, so the trade war is just one of several big issues concerning investors as we head into the G20 summit this week. Joining me now, we've got Jens Nordvik, and he's the founder and CEO of Exante Data. Good to have you, Jens, with Thank us. Thank you. Much appreciated. I mean, there we've just heard uh, rare earths being a really big issue for the United States because China is clamping down as retaliation. The U.S. doesn't have a processing plant. It just produces concentrate. And that's the thing. Everyone's scrambling to either build infrastructure to start processing in the U.S., which does take a very long time, or they're looking for new markets. Who's going to be the winners and losers in this entire game? Yeah, I think that the issue now is we have such a broad section of goods who are either already on tariffs or being threatened very soon, potentially after this G20 meeting. So it really has wide-reaching implications. So if you look at who could potentially step in if China is kind of squeezed out of certain markets, I think there's two or three countries that are at the top of that list. So in Asia, Vietnam is one country that potentially could grab some market share in terms of these assembly uh, businesses. And then in, in the sort of NAFTA region, Mexico really is competing with China in a lot of different sectors. So I would mention those two as the most important countries to watch that could potentially benefit. There's going to be a lot of yeah, losers. But Mexico, <laughs> I know, but Mexico has its own trade dynamics playing out with the U.S. as That's well, right. which of course is up in the air. Yeah. Well, so I think the big difference with Mexico is that even though Trump is very, very aggressive and we obviously had an additional tariff threat very recently, there's not a lot of political support broadly in the U.S. to impose tariffs on Mexico, whereas in relation to China, it's actually backed by Republicans and Democrats alike. So therefore, it is very difficult to see a deal with China that's going to just eliminate all existing tariffs. And that, yeah. I think, is the political difference that's very important. And of course, we're going to see diversion of trade, rewiring of supply chains. That's what we're talking about. China's doing the same thing. It's firmly focused on, you know, its favorite territories, Africa being one of them, other emerging markets as well. Um, and the reality is that a lot of these territories have relationships with both the U.S. and China. And I just wonder how that is going to evolve down the line. What's your base case scenario? Well, so there's a lot of countries around the world where they've really seen their trade patterns shift dramatically over the last two decades, right? U.S. used to be the dominant trade partner, but now China is actually more important. For example, Brazil trades more with China than the U.S. So it's really important how, how they sort of evaluate. I think if you look at the data, that's what we do in my company for we crunch the numbers. What we see is that exports from China to the U.S. have taken a shift down. There's a couple of winners in, in Vietnam and so forth. But really the big shift is that corporates are watching. They're watching this G20 meeting and they're not doing any big investment projects on the, until they know, okay, what is really the path forward. So it's really slowing investment. And that means that the big shift is probably going to happen only in the second half of this year. Yeah. Well, that's if we have a resolution or clarity within the second half of the year. Yeah. How are you seeing this G20 meeting? And, and I say this because when I look at you know FedEx issues, when I see that there were various companies out of China that weren't allowed to buy uh, components out of the US, I mean, in the background, a few days before this meeting, already you're seeing just so much tension that is happening yeah, yeah. in reality. Well, so I think the good news is after a total collapse in talks, we have some kind of talking going on. There was an important meeting with uh, Li He and Lighthouse and Mujia on the phone. Yeah. It's going to be a very difficult process to actually strike a deal. So I think the most likely is that this G20 meeting is going to be a restart of talks of some sort. And then probably the whole month of July, 
is going to be sort of a make or break attempt to get this process going. And if not, we're going to see a dramatic escalation probably at the end of July. Yeah. So I think that's the path we're on right now. And it's interesting because people are taking a lot more of protectionist views um, towards China. And it was one point was China's too aggressive, it's intervening in its currency, so we can't compete and so forth. And here you have, like, for instance, a rare earth's mind thinking about embarking on a processing plant or people trying to build infrastructure in various territories so that they can be self-sufficient. I mean, the question is whether we, they can do it more economically than China. I mean, that, that brings into question. But how do you see that occurring and playing out? Because sometimes being self-sufficient is not so bad, right? I think uh, in the goods that were tariffed so far, China didn't have like a dominant role. That's why they picked those uh, categories first. But if you go to the 300 billion that Trump has threatened to put tariff on, China has a massive market share. So it's very, very difficult without huge investment to shift that production to other countries. That's why this is going to be a very drawn out process. Jens, thank you very much for joining us. Good thank to you. have you in the studio with me. Much appreciated. Jens Nordvik, uh, thank you. And of course, still to come, the Falcon takes flight, the world's most powerful launch vehicle on SpaceX's most difficult mission. More on that just ahead. We have lift off the world's most powerful rocket has taken to the skies. CEO Elon Musk says this will be SpaceX's most difficult mission ever. The Falcon Heavy is carrying two dozen experimental satellites. And we've got Rachel Crane following this story. What an incredible sight. The most difficult mission yet, Elon Musk says. And uh, this is quite significant because this is the second launch this year. That's right, Eleni. Uh, and the reason that this particular mission was, you know, dubbed the most difficult launch they've had to date is because there were 24 experimental satellites on board and they were headed for three distinct orbits. Now, that required a lot of tricky maneuvering for this rocket. The second stage booster had to fire four times, so a lot of room for error here. And the customer was the Air Force, and the DOD coordinated with NASA and several other uh, uh, laboratories and universities for the payloads on board. And a lot of excitement about those payloads. Now, NASA had a yeah. very futuristic atomic clock, also a green propellant. But the thing that had the space community be super jazzed was Light Sail 2. Now, this was a solar sail project, you know, centuries in the making here. Uh, it was sponsored by the nonprofit Planetary Society, which is headed by Bill Nye, known as Bill Nye the Science Guy. And it essentially is a spacecraft that is uh, going to use um, light photons as the propellant. But unlike, uh, you know, traditional solar panels that convert uh, solar energy into electricity, this uses the momentum of the photons itself. Wow. And uh, uh, the DOD, of course, was the one that coordinated this launch. And so a lot of eyeballs on this launch because it was ultimately meant to certify the Falcon Heavy for uh, future national security missions. So as, as we all know, today's launch was a smashing success for SpaceX, SpaceX. So that could mean billions for the company if it does, in fact, yeah. get that certification, Alani. Absolutely. I mean, and that's the thing, right? Because, and that's what made, made it quite difficult was the technology that you say it was testing and, of course, really expensive, uh, I guess, uh, you know, uh, projects as well. 24 spacecraft is what is expected to be um, put into three separate orbits. You, you mentioned this um, earlier. But the question is, yes, successful takeoff, 
but again they still have a lot of work to do to make this entire project a success. What are we hearing on that front? Well, this was also the first time that the Falcon Heavy was using reusable or uh, art, uh, boosters uh, that had already flown to space. So the, uh, that was also uh, a very exciting uh, part of this mission. And they were able to land those boosters once again successfully back on Earth. Unfortunately, the core booster, that crashed uh, into the ocean when it was attempting to land on the drone ship there. But uh, while that, you know, wasn't a perfect landing, there was another huge success for SpaceX here. They were hoping to land uh, the the rocket's fairing um, into like basically a giant net on a ship in the ocean called Miss Tree, and they've been trying to do this for a year and a half, and they finally did it today. So Musk says that that's about a savings of six million dollars being able to rec recover that fairing. Now the fairing is basically like that nose on the end of the rocket that protects the satellites inside the rocket, and it comes off once in space. So a, a, a lot of success for SpaceX today. I'm sure Fantastic. Musk and his uh, his whole team is is celebrating today. Fantastic, Rachel. Thank you so much for that update. Appreciate it. So up next, with investors' appetite for meat alternatives showing no sign of cooling off, we speak to the CEO who is taking on Beyond Meat. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to First Move. Beyond Meat has slumped almost 20% over the past two weeks. Now, after JP Morgan downgraded the stock, it hasn't been performing that well, saying that the enormous appetite for its products was now priced in, but the stock is still up fivefold from its IPO price. Yes, fivefold. Suggesting that alternative meat market continues to boom. Joining me now is the CEO of one of the most recent entrants to the field, Larry uh, Prager, heads up Dr. Prager's Purely Sensible Foods, which recently launched a vegan alternative meat burger, a meat type burger. Larry, great to have you on the show. Thank yeah, you so very much uh, for joining us. And, and the reality is you've actually been in the veggie burger space since 1994, but it was a pure vegetable burger as opposed to a meat alternative burger. Yeah, and now you're getting into the space. You've done a lot of research. You've been working on this for a year and a half, but you're going up against some tough competition, Beyond yep. Meat, Impossible, and other players. How do you plan to do this? Um, yeah, so we, we've been around for 25 years. Um, over the past few years, there's been a tremendous amount of attention brought to the category. Um, we recently created the uh, Perfect Burger, uh, worked on it for, as you said, a year and a half. Um, we recently launched it at the uh, National Restaurant Association show and got tremendously positive feedback. Um, we wanted to take a burger, make it taste like meat, give you the experience of meat, but also we wanted to elevate the product. So we are using clean, recognizable ingredients. You can turn over the back of the box and recognize everything that's on there. Uh, superior nutritional, so we're using less sodium, uh, less uh, fat, way less saturated fat. And we're also going further and infusing the product with vegetables. Um, which really ties back to the DNA of Dr. Yeah. Prager's products. Because it, originally you had sort of just a pure veggie burger and now it's a meat alternative kind of play, which other players are doing as well. But you're talking about clean uh, ingredients. And I guess that over the last few weeks, people are saying, are these alternative meat burgers healthy? Too much sodium? Can't recognize what they are? Way highly processed. Is that going to be your differentiating factor? Yeah, that, that's kind of always been our differentiating factor. It's always been about clean, recognizable ingredients. Um, all of our products are non-GMO verified. Um, a lot of them are gluten-free, vegan, and we use third-party certifications to yeah. kind of give that extra assurance and transparency to the consumer. Full disclosure, I'm vegetarian, so I'm that's into great. this space, but I don't live here, so I haven't tried your stuff as yet. 
But the reality is it's a movement that is growing and it could be worth billions of dollars down the line. When you look at how Beyond Meat has been performing after its IPO, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. And at the same breath, you've also been seeing growth year on year over the past five years, north of 30%. How much room is there for growth right now? Uh, I think there's a lot. I mean, if you look at the market itself, um, it's very small in comparison to regular meat. Um, it's about a billion dollars in the U.S. compared to a hundred billion dollars in the U.S. for meat. Um, and there's a, there's a big opportunity to try to get that up to you know four to ten percent, and that's just domestically. And then, of course, on an international level, it's, it can be much larger. So I know uh, frozen food space, uh, you know, at a store that's kind of been your player over the past few years. Yeah. But you want to get into restaurants. Um, aggressively and how quickly can you do that? Uh, we can do it pretty quickly. Um, we were about, our business is about 12% in the food service restaurant space. Um, we have a, a good team behind us building out the product portfolio. We have great distribution nationally um, and we're hoping to get to about a thousand uh, restaurants by the end of the year. So you've done a lot of R&D yep. to produce this burger. So it must have cost a lot of money. Um, how much does it actually cost to produce alternative meats? I mean, and that's the thing, like, is it economically viable? You know, are you going to get your you know, money back for each burger that you sell? Yeah, um, I think we will. I mean, for Dr. Prager's, we're a pretty lean company. We're a family business. We're based out in uh, northern New Jersey. Um, so our R&D team probably consists of six people. Um, yeah. So it's not a huge organization like that. Um, and we, we also self-manufacture. So everything we're actually uh, producing, about 98% of it, is made out of New Jersey. Yeah, but are you going to have good margins on this alternative meat burger? Um, I mean, initially, or are you going to be loss-making on that specific product and then your other products that are you know, very well you know, established in your business going to be pushing up and propping up that business? Yeah, because of the, our ability to be lean and uh, manufacture, our margins are, are pretty healthy on that yeah. line. But is that burger going to be economically viable in itself, that product? Yes. Yeah? Yeah with the R&D and the cost of manufacturing? Because you've had to build new infrastructure to accommodate yes. this new product. Yep, yeah, recently, uh, for about the past year and a half, we've been building out a new production line. So we yeah. currently have two production lines. We have a third that's a high-speed line that'll actually double our capacity. Yeah. So we've obviously made a large investment in machinery, but um, we also have really aggressive growth plans for the uh, next few years, and uh, we've been meeting them. So we suspect that we'll be able to fill up that pipeline within three or four years. And there's so many entrants within this space, and the question is, is it going to be enough demand? And I know we're talking about it's, it growing, but it could be overheated as well. It's going to be a battle of the burgers, do you think, um, in the States? No, I think it's going to be about differentiation. Part of the reason we went into uh, burgers that do taste more like meat um, yeah. versus veggies is really just to appeal more to our consumer base. Um, you know, everyone's looking for something different, but we believe people will yeah. be happy to try either type, whether it's veggie or meat. And some of the things we're working on now are even a hybrid between yeah. the two, where they have a lot of veggies in them and they also have protein. Are you going to be embarking on IPO? Do you think you want to go public? Um, no, we're not, <laughs> haven't really been considering that at all. <laughs> all right, thank you so very much, Larry. Good to have you with me. Yeah, Thanks so much your for the stock time. exchange. Much appreciated. So that's it for First Move. Thanks so very much for watching. I'm Eleni Jokos. We've got the IDEX, iDesk next uh, with Robin Kerno. And this, it starts right after the short break. As you can see, markets in the red. The Dow Jones is down around two tenths of a percent. I'll see you tomorrow. Cheers. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.